Hello and welcome back to Winter's Tales here on Aaron Sound. We were continuing and in fact concluding the story we began last week. Our um, shaggy bull story. Uh, to refresh your memory, our heroine is a beautiful young woman called Jessie living here on the Isle of Arran. But they swam across the water all the way across the Firth of Clyde to court her a great shaggy red-haired Highland bull who carried her away in his back all the way back across the water away to the mainland where in due course it emerged that our shaggy red-haired romantically courting bull was not in fact born a bull he was a, a handsome young laird who had been transformed into the shape of a shaggy red-haired Highland bull uh, by the evil magic of a bogle in a misty glen. As a young laird, he'd fought with the bogle. The bogle had defeated him, had put a curse upon him that transformed him into the form of, yes, a bull, but he still had a man's heart within that bull's body. And that man's heart, yes, had now fallen in love with young Jessie and was carrying her away to be his bride. And during the course of their travels, he met, they met uh, his three brothers, who gave Jessie three magic fruits. A magic apple, a magic pear and a magic peach. And she was told not to bite them, but to uh, crush them at moments where all hope had seemed to run dry. Well, talk of all hope running dry. Well, the, the, the red-haired bull carrying Jessie off decided he wanted to regain his human form. To truly love and truly be married to Jesse in his full, proper human shape. But to get back that proper human shape, he had to fight, in effect, a rematch with the bogle of the Misty Glen. He fought that rematch with his bull's horns. He impaled the evil bogle. But the evil bogle, with his dying breath, put a curse upon the red bull, even as he was transformed back into human form, back into the form of a handsome young lear. Yes, the red, the bogle put the curse upon him, and in conjunction with the curse, put a great bloody red claw print across the young lear's white, white shirt. And the bogle, with his dying breath, said, From this day forward, until that blood stain is washed out of your shirt, you will be invisible. And you will be inaudible to the woman that you love. And she will be invisible and inaudible to you. You won't be able to see one another. You won't be able to hear one another. And then the bogle died. Croaked, as it were. But the young mayor thinks nothing of that. He hurries up out the glen to take Jessie in his arms and finally restore to his human form. Marry her and live happily ever after. But it doesn't work out that way because the, the dying bogle was speaking true when he passed on that curse. The young Laird is invisible to Jessie. She can't see him. He is in inaudible to her. She can't hear him. And he can't see her and he can't hear her. So the two lovers, invisible and inaudible to one another, wander away in opposite directions. Hello, hello, I can't see you. Hello, I can't hear you. Wander off in opposite directions and soon are far, far away from one another. And that's a rather grim note on which we left them last week. Well, let's now rejoin Jessie. She's been wandering, searching for her red bull. Or could it be true? Has he got back his human form? She doesn't know because she can't see him 
anywhere. But she wanders on calling, calling, calling for him, looking, looking, looking for him, can't see him anywhere. All through the night, the wild and windy night, she wanders. And all through the day after that, and the night that follows, and the next day and the next night, wandering, searching, searching, looking, looking, shouting out, crying out, seeing nothing of him, hearing nothing of him. Well, she's getting very disconsolate. Things that seem to be going so good for him, he's going to kill the bogle, get back his human form, they're going to live happily ever after, and now, now she can't, she can't find him at all, either as a bull or as a man. So she wanders on, she doesn't know where she is. She's in a, a wild moorland many, many miles away in a heck of a lot of water away from her native Isle of Arran. She wanders on, wanders on, and then clunk! Oh, she's walked straight into something. Something hard. Oh, she almost broke her nose. But, but there's nothing there. There's nothing there. So there's just the open road in front of her. So she carries on again. Conk! Oh, she, there is something there. There is something there. And she keeps walking straight into it. Something. She reaches out. She feels with her fingertips. Yes, there's something there. Something solid. Something hard. Stretches every which way. She can feel out with her hands, but she can't see it. It's like... Glass. Yes, smooth, transparent glass blocking her way forward. And she recalls what the red bull had said to her before descending into the, the misty glen, that he in fact came from the kingdom on the far side of a great glass mountain. Maybe this is it. This is the glass mountain. Yes, it certainly feels like uh, 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 the lower slopes of a great mountain. But yes, a mountain made of entirely of clear, transparent glass. And through that clear, transparent glass, you can see the road continuing onward down into the next valley. Maybe that's where he lives. Maybe, yes, he get transformed from a red bull back into a handsome young laird. He couldn't find her. He's made his way home round the other side of this glass mountain. And that's where she'll find him. If she can just get a... Uh, Get over this glass mountain. Well, simplest thing to do with a mountain is uh, climb it. Up one side and down the other. Okay, well, uh, right, here goes. Start climbing up the glass mountain. Climb, climb, climb. Squeak. She slides back down. The glass is so smooth that she can't really get a, a purchase upon it. Well, she'll try again. Climb, climb, climb. Squeak! She slides back down to the bottom. Climb, 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 squeak! Climb, 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 squeak! No way, no how. The glass mountain is so smooth and glassy uh, that she can't get any proper grip on it the way she would on rock or turf. How to get round? Well, can she go round it? Well, she feels her way. This way, along this way, along the side of the glass mountain, but it seems to go on for miles and miles. Feels her way back, this away, back along the side of the glass mountain. It goes on miles and miles in that direction. Well, how can she can't get round it? She can't get over it. What can she do? What can she do? Well, she collapses at the side of the road, sits on a log, and frankly bursts into tears, tears of frustration. So close, maybe in the man she loves, or bull that she loves, or whatever he is, bull or man, is just the other side of this mountain, and she can't get close to him, and she breaks into tears. But then... <laughs> drying her tears she sees 
at the far side of the, the road on, on which she sits. A wee cottage, a, a blacksmith's cottage. And she wanders across and she uh, knocks on the door and the blacksmith comes to the door and he's, there he is standing there, the, the light of his forge glowing at his back. He says, yes, yes, girl, what do you want? And Jessie explains to him, she, she, uh, she, she, she was trying to get over this, uh, there seems to be a glass mountain here, j just, just along the road here, but she can't get over it. She doesn't seem able to get round it, so she doesn't know what to do. Does, does the blacksmith know how to get past the glass mountain? Oh, no, 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 you'll never get past that glass mountain. Oh, no, it's much too high. It's much too smooth and slippery. It goes on for miles and miles and miles in every direction. You'll never get round it. You'll never get past it. Oh, the folk that live on the other side of the glass mountain, sometimes they come this away. They used to get in trouble with a bogle down the road, didn't you hear? Uh, but they have their own secret tunnel that goes under the glass mountain. But none of us folk from this side of the glass mountain have ever been able to find the way into that tunnel. So no, you, you can't get past it. Oh, but there must be some way, there must be something I can do. Well, says the blacksmith, Actually, of course, I'm a blacksmith and we often turn up in stories like this because we blacksmiths are the only folk who have power through our, through our forging of the, the element of iron, any power over the kingdom of magic, such as is manifested in that there glass mountain. Now, what I could do for you, and I've done it a time or two in the past, is I can make you a pair of magic iron shoes. So you would slide on over your own shoes and then with those magic iron shoes, why they would stick like magnets to the side of that glass mountain. You could walk with the iron shoes up over the top of the mountain and down the other side. Well, well, says Jesse, yeah, can, can, can you do that for me? Oh, dear me, he says, well, magic iron shoes, they come very expensive. Can you afford to pay for them, I wonder? Pay for them, oh. Oh dear, says Jessie, well I left my father's home on the Isle of Arran uh, very abruptly on the, riding in the back of a, a swimming red shaggy-haired bull. Um, I didn't bring a lot of money with me, I've got a wee bit here, but just a few um, coppers. Oh no, that's not enough, that's not enough. Oh, I can't even make your iron shoes for them few coppers there. But what you could do is you could uh, come in here into my blacksmith's cottage and you could work for me, work for me for the next year. 52 weeks. 365 days you can work for me, you can work hard, you can make my breakfast in the morning, my lunch at midday, and my supper in the evening, you can sweep out my forge, you can sweep all the ashes and soot off the floor, you can clean my anvil, you can stoke up the fire, you can do basically all the dirty work for me. If you did that for one year, well in return for your services, because I wouldn't be paying you mind, oh I can't afford to pay you, but in return for those services I would make you, I would forge you a pair of magic iron shoes that would help you over the glass mountain. Well, says Jessie, who's a wee bit ahead of her time in the land of once upon a time. She says, well, that's a bit sexist. Just because I'm a woman making me want to work for you like that? No way. I don't want to be a, you, you, you're, you're skivvy. Work, work for no pay at all? Where does the minimum wage come into that? Oh, no, no, no. Well, um, you, you said there's a tunnel, a tunnel that goes under the glass mountain. Well, you say that no one this side of the mountain knows where it is, where I will find it. 
I'm not going to work for you sweeping the floors and making your breakfast and your lunch and your supper and what have you. No, goodbye. Thank you for your advice, but I'll go and I'll find the the, the pathway through into the tunnel uh, that goes under the gas mountain myself. Thank you. Goodbye. So, Jessie hurries off. She's not being any of that sexist nonsense about having to sweep the floors uh, just because she's a woman and uh, cook cook all the meals. So she wanders off, she feels her way back along the side of the glass mountain, looking, 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 where there must be some kind of doorway or some hatchway that leads down into the tunnel that goes under the glass mountain. And she searches and she searches. Long days, she searches. Long weeks, she searches. Long months. The months go by. She can't find the entrance to the secret tunnel anywhere. And nobody ever has. It's only the folk on the other side who've ever known where the the entrance and exit to that that tunnel is. So reluctantly, she has to give up and she wanders back to the cottage of the blacksmith. She says, "Okay, blacksmith, you strike a hard deal. Well, there's no choice. I have to get over that glass mountain. The man I love or bull that I love or whatever the heck he is, he's on the other side of that glass mountain. I must get to him. So, okay, that's the deal. A year, 365 days, 52 weeks. All right, I will work for you. I will sweep your floor and I'll uh, sweep up all the ashes and the soot and I'll uh, stoke up the flames and I'll make your breakfast and your, your lunch and your supper and your what have you. I'll do all that for you. Uh, on condition that at the end of that year, yes, you provide me with a magic iron shoes. Well, it takes about a year, says the blacksmith, to make magic iron shoes. Well, I'll get started at my work and you get started on your work. So it goes. A year, a year, folks, of hard, hard work for poor Jesse. Sweeping and cleaning and, you know, washing his uh, clothes and stoking the fire and making breakfast and lunch and supper and washing all the dishes and all this terrible, terrible sexist drudgery that she's subjected to. But she does it. And at the end of the year, the blacksmith turns to her and says, aye, aye, well, you've worked fine enough for me. All right, well, I've kept my part of the pact here too. You see here, I'm just uh, hammering out the final wee touches. Clank, clank, clank. Here, my anvil to your magic iron shoes. All right, take the magic iron shoes. You can slip them on over your ordinary shoes. Walk out to that glass mountain. Put the sole on one in the side of the mountain. Clunk, you'll find it sticks like a magnet to metal. Well, there we go. Jessie, thank you, thank you. She takes the iron shoes. She slides them on over her own shoes and clunk, 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 makes her way out to, oh, there it is. Almost walked into it again. The side of the great glass mountain. All right, well, uh, raise one foot. The sole of the iron shoe, raise it up towards the side of the glass mountain. Clunk! And it sticks. It sticks like a suction cup or, yes, like a, like a magnet to metal. Now she'll have to raise her left foot off the ground. Clunk! It sticks to the side of the mountain. Peels off the right sole and clunk. Another step. Peels off the left sole and clunk. And in this fashion, she makes her way clunk, 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 clunk up the side of the mountain. She looks very peculiar. She's essentially horizontal. Uh, But those iron shoes, they stick reliably to every little curve and crevice of the glass mountain. Clunk, 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 clunk. Clunk, all the way to the top of the mountain, up on the summit, <sighs> draw a breath. It feels rather peculiar, feels like you're standing, floating there in thin air with the mountain so transparent. 
But there, looking down from the top of the mountain, what can she see? The road goes down into the valley. Down in the valley she sees spires, rooftops, a whole kingdom laid out there. It must be the kingdom where the red bull in his human form was the grand laird of the land. Okay, deep breath and now start making, this will be even more hair raising, making our way down the other side of the glass mountain. But the iron shoes are quite, quite reliable. Clunk, 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 clunk. Carry it all the way down to the far side. The far side, she can take off those heavy iron shoes, hide them away again behind a rock in case she needs them again, and wanders her way down into, the, into this magical little township. The township of the red-haired Laird. Laird Roy, he's called. Roy from the Gaelic uh, for red. So she wanders into the, the land of Laird Roy. And uh, it's a very celebratory day. All the folk are out in the streets, clapping and cheering, celebrating uh, uh, the, the, a visit, uh, uh, the passing by of their young, handsome Laird, Laird Roy. And indeed, as Jessie takes up her place in the crowd, she, she wonders, could this be him? Could Laird Roy be the, the, the red bull um, with his human form again? Could it be him? Oh, just push, excuse me, excuse me, just push forward through the through the, the crowd, get a good view at the edge of the pavement. For here, here coming past, a grand carriage, all trimmed with gold and with four white horses with magnificent plumes upon them, all, all trotting by. And all the people cheer, here he goes, our laird, our laird, who we lost for so long, he disappeared. And now we've got him back, hooray, 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 three cheers, three cheers for Laird Roy. Hip, hip, hooray, hip, hip, hooray, hip, hip, hooray. And the carriage trundles by and everyone's waving to the, to the back of the carriage. And it's very peculiar because Jesse, looking in that carriage, can't see anyone sitting in the carriage. The carriage seems quite empty. All the townsfolk around it are all waving and cheering towards the back of that carriage. But if there's anyone there, she can't see him. Everyone else seems able to see someone, but not Jessie. Strange that. What could that all be about? But anyway, the carriage just trundles by and heads straight for, oh, there it is, the home of Laird Roy, a grand castle. And the carriage is rattling over the drawbridge rattling under the rising portcullis and into the courtyard beyond. The portcullis comes down and, well, Jesse thinks, well, that must be where he lives. He must have regained his human form. Red Bull changed into, into the red Laird, Laird Roy. Well, I'll just go and I'll, I'll talk my way into the castle and we'll be reunited and we'll get married and we'll live happily ever after. So she runs across up towards the, uh, the little guard's post outside at the main gate of the castle. And the guard is there, spear in hand. And she says, uh, excuse me, could you just let me in? Um, I think, I think, I strongly suspect I know you're Laird Roy. I, I think he loves me. And I know that I love him. And I think we're going to be married. So if you could just let me in through the gate of the castle. What? Says the guard. What? You think you can just trot? Straight through the gate of this here royal castle. Past a fearsome guard like me. I mean, look at you. Look at you. You look a wee bit rough around the edges, darling. You look like someone who's been uh, living out in the wild open road for the for the last year or two. You look like someone who's been making a living, sweeping out a, a, a dirty grate. You're all covered in soot and ashes. 
or your clothes are a wee bit threadbare, the, the hem in your skirt's all frayed. You're not the sort I'm supposed to let in to see our grand young laird. Get off with you, get off with you. We don't take your type in here. And he refuses to let Jessie in. What can she do again? Bitter tears, but then she's clever, Jessie. She has another idea. She simply makes her way round the far side of the castle. Round at the back of the castle, uh, there's the steps leading down to the servants' entrance. Leading down to the, the downstairs of the castle, where the servants live and work, where the, the laundry is, where the kitchen is, and so on and so forth. And she makes her way down the stairs to the, the door of the servants' quarters. And she knocks on the door there. And the door opens and, oh, 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 dear me, a, a bit scary. There is a tall, fierce, and rather imposing woman. This is the housekeeper of the castle. And she says, yes, girl, what do you want here knocking at my door? And Jessie says to the housekeeper, well, I'm sorry, excuse me, I, um, uh, uh, I understand this is the servants' quarters. Um, uh, do you need any servants, any new servants? As you can see by my, uh, by my apparel, by the, the, the suit and the ashes upon me and the, 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 the roughness of the hem on my skirt. I, I'm not, of course, a grand young lady, um, I'm, but I'm perfectly prepared to work here as a servant. Do you need any extra hands? The housekeeper looks her over and says, well... Well, we always do need extra hands. I mean, our young laird upstairs, up in the grand quarters of the castle, he disappeared for a long time. And there was a little work here for servants, but then he came back. We don't know what had happened to him in his faraway travels. But yes, he returned, and since he returned, well, there's a lot of work he has to do down here. Um, scrubbing the floors and uh, doing all the laundry and washing the dishes and cooking all the meals. Yes, we can always use an extra hand. Oh, you're a wee bit dirty and dishevelled, but um, so long as you stay below stairs, well, that should be good enough. All right, in you come, girl, in you come. So Jessie is let into the castle, but only, yes, in the servants' quarters. And the housekeeper, she bosses Jessie, she's very, very bossy, uh, towards the, the steamy, the laundry of the castle. She says, well, right, right, says the housekeeper, you can start in here. Uh, by washing all them clothes, yes, all them small clothes and so on, you get them all scrubbed and nice and clean. Go on, it's hard work, but you better get started on it, hadn't you? So Jessie starts in the laundry. She starts scrubbing away and cleaning away the laundry, and it's hard, hard, back-breaking work. 18-hour days, can you imagine? And no minimum wage there, neither. So she's working away hard, and as she's working away hard, she can't help but Notice some hanging on a, a coat hanger over in one corner. A beautiful white shirt. Beautifully, immaculately tailored. Shining, gleaming in the what little sunlight shines in through the, through the laundry windows. But there's a great dark red stain right down the front. It looks almost like a stain of, well, did, did, did the tomato sauce bottle explode at the table? And some spaghetti bolognese gets spilled all over it. Messy eating spaghetti bolognese after all. Or, no, it, it could almost be blood. Yes, like a stain of blood. And almost like a print, like a, a claw print, like a bull's claw print. A bloody claw print right down the front of the white shirt. And she inquires of the housekeeper, should she perhaps try cleaning that? Oh no, says the housekeeper. Oh no, don't waste your time. You'll never get that clean. No one, we've been trying. 
Every servant down here has been trying to clean that shirt and no one can. That stain, it just won't come out. Not for no one, no, not for no amount of scrubbing. See, the fact is that when our young laird returned to our castle here, he had that great red stain right down the front of his shirt. And he wanted it scrubbed away, he wanted it cleaned away. In fact, he said he needed that stain washed away before he could see and before he could hear the woman that he truly loved. And before she could hear and uh, see him. The stain had to go before that could happen, before he could be reunited with his true love. And he said, so please, someone, anyone down here, anyone who can wash away that stain, please do so. And in fact, he went further. He said he, he suspected that the only person who could wash the stain out of that shirt would indeed be that lost woman whom he truly loved. Only she could do it. And he went further. He said, well, I'll put, I'll put a bet on it. He said, Whatever woman can wash the stain out of that white shirt, that is the woman that I will marry. Whoever she is, but I know who she'll be, because it could only be the woman who I truly love and who I lost. Oh, he said he lost her up at the top of some misty glen, something to do with a bogo and so forth. But we've all tried, of course, because uh, you know he's quite a catch as our young laird. But no young woman here can wash out that stain. Well, let me have a try. No, no, please, says Jessie. Let me have a try. She takes it down from the hanger. She scrapes some more snowflakes, uh, some soap flakes into the basin. Lots of hot steaming water. And she puts the white shirt in the hot, bubbly, sudsy water. And she scrubs and she scrubs and she scrubs. And she scrubs and she scrubs and she scrubs. And in no time at all, well, let's say two minutes, three minutes, no more than four minutes. She has washed away that stain entirely. The stain is gone. A bright white shirt looking as if brand new. There, look, says Jessie. I, this is all coming together in my head. I, I, I'm making out sense of this uh, very much so now. Yes, I washed the stain out of that shirt I must be the, the woman that the layer loves. I think I've already met him, even if he was in a slightly different form from the form of a young Laird. Well, I must take this up and true to his promise, he'll see me, he'll love me, he'll marry me and we'll have our happy ending. Uh, uh, excuse me, can you show me, housekeeper? Can you show me uh, which of the staircases is the one that goes up to the young Laird's quarters up above? Wait a minute, says the housekeeper. You just wait a minute. There's a wee bit of etiquette here. Castle etiquette. You can't go wandering up to our young laird's quarters up above. I mean, look at you. Look at you, girl. You look like a, a skivvy. Like a swat. And what you're all covered in. What this like ash and soot out of a blacksmith's forge. You look like you've been living wild on the road for a year and more. The, the hem in your skirt is all frayed away. Your nails are all, all broken and cracked with hard work. Someone like you, someone as common as you, can go wandering up into our weird quarters. Oh, it'd be a complete breach of castle, castle etiquette. Wait, no, no, let me take the shirt. I'll take the shirt, don't you worry. I'll go upstairs as housekeeper. I'll tell him the whole story. And of course, I'll, yes, I'll tell him all about you. And if he believes the story, well, then we'll see what happens. But it must be me as housekeeper 
as Castle Housekeeper goes up and tells in the story first. So, no, just you wait there. Get on with your work. Get on with the, the scrubbing and the soaping the floors and all the dirty work down here. I'll go up and I'll have a wee word with our young laird, Roy. So it's a housekeeper who wanders up there. The housekeeper who wanders into the quarters of our, yes, our young laird. We're reunited with him now, yes. Jessie couldn't see him in the carriage because of the because of the bold spell. Of course she couldn't. Ah, uh, but now that spell is broken. But anyway, he's he's sat there in his grand throne room, weeping his heart out. He has regained <laughs> he has regained his human form. But he has lost the woman that he loves. It's almost two years now since he lost Jessie. Somewhere, somewhere at the top of that misty glen. He lost the only woman he, he has ever that he ever could love. So though, although he's got back his human form and his grand castle and his kingdom, he's broken hearted. But wait, who's that coming in there? It's a, oh, it's the housekeeper, it's the castle housekeeper. Uh, but what's that there in her hand? What's that she's carrying it? Is it? Could it be? Yes, it's his white, white shirt. But wait. Where's the bogle blood stain that placed the curse upon him? The curse that many can never see nor hear Jesse. That Jesse can never see nor hear him. The blood stain is gone. What, what happened to the blood stain? Where's it gone? Did, did somebody clean the shirt? He says to the housekeeper. Uh, yes, yes, young Laird. Uh, the stain you see is completely gone. A wee bit of scrub and a wee bit of parcel, and there, woof, whoosh, it's gone. Oh, where is she? Is, is it Jessie? Has Jessie appeared, he says? A young woman called Jessie? Did she do it? And the housekeeper says, What? Jessie? Oh, no. Oh, no, sir. I don't know about no Jessie. I've never heard of a Jessie. There's no Jessie here, not in this castle. Not so far as I'm aware, anywhere in this kingdom. No! No, ye young lairdship. It was my daughter, Euphemia, who washed the stain out. A wee bit of elbow grease and she's got a muscular elbows as my Euphemia. She scrubbed it out. And well, according to your pledge, your pledge to the people of your kingdom, young laird, you said you would marry whoever it was that washed the blood stain out of your white, white shirt. But wasn't he no Jessie? I've never heard of a Jessie. It was, yes, it was Euphemia, my daughter. And so, true to your word, if you're going to be true to your word, you must marry Euphemia. Oh, don't look like that, young, young Leah. Don't look like that. Well, my Euphemia, I know she's no oil painting. Made of a horror comic, really. But uh, no oil painting. And um, I know she's, a, she's, she's, a, she's got a slightly um, fiery and ugly temperament, likewise. And that comes from her, her favourite hobby. Her doing in the cellar. She likes to, to kill rats. Uh, sometimes with her bare hands. And uh, sometimes with her bare teeth. Although the problem is, with all the gaps between her teeth, sometimes the, the tails hang out, even as she eats them. And that's given her a rather fiery, fearsome and uh, ugly temperament. And I know, I know Euphemia has a wee bit of a problem with uh, body odour. But don't you worry about that, young laird. After about five years of living with it, you'll stop thinking of it as body odour. And you'll think of it more as a, a delicate fragrance. But one minute, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter about our, our temperament. 
But her habit of killing all the rats and uh, her, her, her ugly mug of a face and her, her, her body odor, it doesn't matter. You gave your word. Whoever washed out the stain, you had to marry. And I'm telling you, you do trust your housekeeper, don't you, young laird? It was my Euphemia. And so you must marry her, don't you think? Oh, says the young laird. Oh, um, yes, I, uh, I did give my word, didn't I? To all the people in my kingdom, that whoever, yes, um, yes, the stain, etc., washed it out, etc. Yes, I did give my word, um, Euphemia. Well, I know Euphemia. I've sometimes caught her round the back, yes, with a, a few rat tails hanging out between the gaps between her, her large and yellow teeth. But, um, yes, she's not really my type. Uh, really, Jessie was much more my type. But you see, Jessie's no one. You, you don't know who she is. You've never seen her. You've never heard of her. Well, I did give my word. Well, yes, I must keep. What kind of a laird am I if I don't keep my word to my people? Yes, all right, all right. Well, I'll, I'll marry Euphemia. Well, we must get it over with. Shall we say in a three days' time? Set up the wedding and I'll marry her in the church in three days' time, yes. Euphemia, well, I'm sure I'll get used to her. I hope I'll get used to her. So that's that. That's that. So the housekeeper, she returns back downstairs and Jessie's waiting. She runs to her, yes. Uh, what did the laird say? Uh, did he remember me? Did he remember his beautiful Jessie? Did, he, did, did you tell him I washed out the stain? Uh, when are we going to be married? When's our, our happy ever after ending coming? What? What? Says the housekeeper. Of course not. Oh, I told him the whole story. Of course. Of course. But our young laird, he's, of course, he's a, he's a, he's a young nobleman. He's got a certain uh, uh, social propriety to attend to. He said uh, when, I, when he heard that it was a ugly looking soot-smeared, ash-stained, ragged-skirted skivvy from below stairs who were here who'd uh, washed out the scene. Oh, he said, oh, I couldn't possibly marry someone like that. He said, no, I'll marry the woman that I truly love. And that was, well, it just happens to be my daughter, Euphemia. He confessed that all these years he'd, he'd, he'd nourished a great passion for Euphemia. And, of course, now faced with the choice between marrying a, a skivvy a slattern, a below-stairs servant like you. And marrying the elegant daughter of a housekeeper like me, he decided he wanted to marry Euphemia. So he's marrying Euphemia in the church in three days' time, and there's nothing you can do with it, about it. So on, go on, get on with your chores. Get on with the scrubbing and the, the laundry and uh, wash the dishes over there and do this and do that and so on, and put up with your lot in life. Because you're not going nowhere. Beyond, beyond the servants' quarters here. Well, poor Jessie, she, she, she takes the housekeeper at her word. Could young Laird Roy be so unfaithful to her? Surely not, but maybe he does prefer Euphemia to her. Well, who knows? She's a look at Euphemia, but I mean, doesn't look much of a, much of a, a, a pretty bride to be, but um, well, you know, no accounting for tastes. Well, anyway, Jessie is heartbroken. Heartbroken, she thought she was so close to her happy ending. So close to regaining the man that she loved and now all her hopes are dashed. All her hopes. The situation is hopeless. But she sits there crying. She remembers her encounter in our previous episode with the Red Bulls 
three human brothers, the three brothers to young Laird Roy, and how each of them had given her a magic fruit. She recalls how the first of the brothers had given her a magic apple, told her to keep it, not to eat it, not to bite into it, but to wait, to wait, because there would come a moment when the situation in life would seem utterly hopeless to her. No way out of an absolute dead end. And when that moment came, she should not bite, not eat the magic apple. She should crush it, squelch it utterly flat. And there among the pulp of the crushed apple, she might find something that would help get her out of her difficult situation. Well, this is that moment, if ever that moment has come. She reaches into her little knapsack and she pulls out the magic apple. No biting of it, she puts it down before her and... <laughs> squelches it flat. And there among the squelched pulp of the magic apple, shining, glittering, gleaming diamonds. A wealth of diamonds. And she scoops up the diamonds out of the apple pulp and she thinks, well, what can I do? I don't really care about money. I don't care about diamonds. I don't care about riches. I care about the man I love. What can... Ah, I know. I know. I know. And she goes to the housekeeper and she says, Housekeeper, I understand what you said. Uh, uh, the young Laird, he wants to marry your daughter, Euphemia. But please, just before he gets married, there's still, you know, there's still uh, three nights to go before he marries Euphemia. Um, tonight, would you, would you possibly let me into the young Laird's quarters? After dark, after I've finished my 18-hour shift, would you let me into the young Laird's quarters up above? Let me speak to him. Let me see to him, see him, and let me see if how he feels about marrying Euphemia after he's spoken to, after he's seen me. Oh, I know you might be reluctant. You don't want me coming between uh, the young Laird and Euphemia, but here, if you let me into the young Laird's quarters at ten o'clock tonight, I will give you in return. Look, all these diamonds. They are yours if you let me into the young Laird's quarters. And of course, the governess doesn't want to do any such thing. She knows herself, of course, that Jessie is beautiful. She knows that she's just the sort of young woman that the Laird would want to marry. That the young Laird would prefer to Euphemia with her rat's tails hanging out from between her teeth. So she doesn't want the young Laird to meet Jessie. Let alone to, for Jessie to tell the full story of washing the, the stain out of the shirt. But at the same time, those do look beautiful diamonds. Oh yes, fancy sparkling diamonds. If she got a hold of them, cashed in on them, well, she'd be a very, very rich woman. And this, this housekeeper, she liked to be rich. She was very covetous of money and jewels and any kind of wealth she could get her hands on. How can, how can she let Jessie go up to meet the young Laird? And yet... She does want to get it, but she comes up with a brilliant plan. She comes up with a very brilliant plan. A way of, as it were, having her cake and eating it. A way of having the diamonds and yet not disturbing daughter Euphemia's track to the, to the marriage ceremony. All right, she says, says the, the housekeeper. Give me the diamonds. Give me the, yes, I'll take the diamonds here. I'll put them in my wee pocket here in my penny. Yes, oh, I'm spinning over the side. Oh, don't want to lose any. All right, all right, well, I'll keep my part of the deal. Yes, 10 o'clock tonight, after your shift's done, 
I'll lead you upstairs, up the back stairs, up to the young laird's quarters, and I'll let you and I have the key to all the secret doors that let you into the, the laird's quarters, and I'll let you into his his chamber up there, and you can spend some time with him. Oh, I'm not worried about you. You're not half as bonny as my Euphemia. Yes, I'll let you in. Ah, oh, but the condition is, you must be out of the young laird's quarters at cock crow the next morning. Oh, yes, of course, I'm a... a, a I think, says Jesse, I'll only need five minutes with the laird to make my case to him and then everything will be settled between me and him. Yes, ten o'clock tonight. Well, yes, have the diamonds. I'll see you at the foot of the back stairs ten o'clock tonight. But at nine o'clock that night, one hour before the arranged meeting, the housekeeper plays her secret trump card. She goes to the young laird who's feeling a little bit... Anxious, a little bit discomposed. Frankly, he doesn't want to marry Euphemia. He wants to marry Jessie wherever the heck Jessie has got herself to. He doesn't want to marry Euphemia. But nevertheless, he's made his pledge, but he's very restless and unsettled by the thought he might not be able to get out of marriage to the, the, the rather unbecoming Euphemia. And he's strutting and fretting about his chambers. And the housekeeper comes to him and says, Young Laird, Young Laird, Young Laird, Roy, you're looking very nervous. So you won't, I mean, it's almost time for your bed. You've only got a good night's sleep being so nervous and restless. Well, you're not worried about getting married to my Euphemia, are you? Here, here. I've got something that'll help you sleep tonight. Help you sleep. Sleep like the angels. Get a good, a good night's rest. Here, I've brought you up here in my wee silver platter. A lovely cup of cocoa. Lovely cup of cocoa. Take a drink of this cocoa and you will sleep like a log the whole night through. Oh, um, yes. Yes, says the young lady. I'm feeling a wee bit uh, nervous, a wee bit anxious. But I suppose any young husband-to-be feels anxious about the, the coming nuptials. Um, yes, I could do perhaps with something to help me sleep. Um, cocoa, yes, um, let me lift off the... Oh, it's a nice steaming mug. Um, let me have a sip. Oh, that's lovely. Lovely smooth, creamy taste of the cocoa. Drink it all down. Drink it all down, says the housekeeper. So he drinks, 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 drinks it all down. And oh, Thank you, thank you, housekeeper. Well, as soon as he's drained the mug dry, he feels very, very drowsy, very lightheaded, very sleepy. Oh, just you, just you get to bed. Put your head in that pillow. As soon as your head touches the pillow, says the housekeeper, you'll be straight off to sleep. The deepest sleep you'll sleep till well long after cock crow tomorrow morning. And so the young, the young laird, he gets into bed, head hits the pillow, the moment his head hits the pillow, fast asleep. Ha, 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 says the housekeeper there at the bedside. That wee drop of something, that wee extra ingredient, I drip, drip, dripped into the cocoa. It's done his work. He'll sleep nice and sound. Oh, yes, sleep right through till bell after cock crow tomorrow morning. Oh, meanwhile, oh, yes, I do have a wee appointment down at the bottom of the back stairs, do I not? Yes, with Jessie. Who wants to come up here? Yes, well, I'll be down there for ten o'clock, so she hurries downstairs. There's Jessie waiting at ten o'clock. 
Uh, yes, will you, will you, will you help show me the way up to the Laird's chambers? Yes, certainly. Be happy to. I've nothing to worry about. I know his heart's really st stuck, stuck firm on Euphemia. Yes, up the stairs you come, up the back stairs. Here, secret qu secret door into the prince's quarters. But I've got the secret key. Click, click. Uh, unlocks the secret door through into the prince's quarters. Leads uh, her all the way up to the, the young laird's bedchamber. Up you come here. Here's the door. Now, shh, shh. He might just be having a wee light doze, but you can go in there and you can wake him up. Aye, aye, wake him up. If you can. And you go, and you go. But remember, keep your part of the deal. You have to be back down in the servants' quarters, hard at your work by the time a cock crow tomorrow morning. Oh, yes, yes, says Jesse. Don't worry. I'll only need five, ten minutes with him and all will be settled. All right, housekeeper, you can leave us here. And Jessie opens the door and steps through into the young Laird's bedchamber. Oh, the lights are out, but there's a bright moon shining through the window. And there in the glow of the moon, she can see a figure lying in the, the grand four-poster bed. And she creeps, creeps, creeps across the elegant rugs, the bearskin rugs out there on the floor. Creeps to the bedside and there, oh, the brightest shaft of moonlight yet, shining in clear and bright upon the sleeper in the bed. And, well, it's a young man that, strictly speaking, she has never seen before, thanks to the Bogle's curse. But there's something about him, as she sees him now, certainly, very familiar. That lovely red hair, that tousled, rather wild red hair, the way a great fringe of red hair hangs across his brow, almost across his eyes indeed. Even the way he, he snores in his sleep. Yes, yes, it's him. It's him. It's the shaggy-haired Highland bull who swam all the way to the Isle of Arran to win her and carry her away here to the mainland, who fell in love with her, who she fell in love with even in his wild, red-haired, shaggy bull form. Um, it's him, but transformed into the form of the most handsome young man she's ever seen. And of course, yes, he's fat, he's asleep. Ah, uh, but she can wake him up. Uh, she creeps to the bedside, she gives him a little nudge. That doesn't wake him up. She gives him a little prod. That doesn't quite wake him up. But she knows what will wake him up. She settles down at the side of his bed and she sings to him. Sings to him of all she's been through to get there. She sings, All this long while I searched for you. The mountain of glass I climbed for you. The bloodied shirt I washed for you. Now open your eyes and see me. And the young Laird's answer is... <laughs> Such is the effect of that certain something which the housekeeper put in the young Laird's cocoa that he's still fast asleep. Sleeping like a stone. Sleeping like a rock on the hillside. Sleeping like a log. Well, Jessie sings to him again. She shakes him again. She prods him. She caresses his face. She kisses him. Nothing will wake him up. Hour after hour, all through the long hours of the night. She sings. She prods. She shakes. She ruffles his lovely red hair. 
nothing will wake him. And then, then suddenly, the cock crow. Outside the window, she must keep her part of the deal. No getting my wake, nothing to do. She has to hurry back down the back stairs. Back down to the servants' quarters and take up her, her scrubbing and her scraping and all her, her, her menial tasks down there. And once again, she feels defeated. Once again, she feels heartbroken, so close and yet so far. Once again, life seems utterly hopeless. But in that hopeless moment, she recalls the gift of the second of the Bulls brothers in our first episode, the magic pear. Again, she was told, don't eat the magic pear. Oh no, don't bite the magic pear. When a moment of utter hopelessness comes, crush the magic pear. And there in the pulp of the magic pear, you might possibly find something that will lead the way out of that hopeless moment. So she reaches into her little rucksack, pulls out the magic pear. Doesn't bite, doesn't chew, doesn't eat it, but <coughs> squelches the magic pear. There in the pulp of the magic pear, glittering, gleaming, shining, even brighter than in the diamonds, emeralds. Emeralds, green, green emeralds. And she scoops them up out of the pear pulp. And what can she do with them? She knows what to do. She goes back to the housekeeper. She says, housekeeper, housekeeper, uh, things didn't quite work out last night. But there's still a couple of nights before uh, the young Laird's marriage to your daughter Euphemia. Uh, here, could we possibly do the same again? If I gave you all these, look, look, even more valuable than the diamonds, all these emeralds. If I gave you all these emeralds, would you do the same again tonight at 10 o'clock? Would you let me in at the back stairs? Lead me up to the up to the young Laird's chambers. Leave me alone up there. I promise, I promise I'll be away long before cock crow. Back down here, if needs be, doing my work. I only need five, ten minutes with him, but certainly when he's wide awake, and all will be settled between us. Please take the emeralds and do that for me. Once again, of course, the housekeeper doesn't really want Jessie coming between her daughter Euphemia and the young Laird, but she does want those emeralds. Oh, they look beautiful emeralds. She got a good price for the diamonds. She'll get an even better price for these emeralds. But of course, she knows what to do. She can do the same thing as she did the last night. Yes, I'll take those emeralds off you. Slide them away here in the pocket, my penny. Yes, I got a good price for the diamonds. Good price for these. I know just the place to go to fence them, as it were. All right, well, carry on with your jobs. At 10 o'clock tonight, I'll let you in the back stairs. I'll show you your way. I'll unlock all the doors for you. I'll lead you right into the Laird's chambers up above. But again, she's sneaky. Nine o'clock, she goes to the young Laird. Again, he's, he's worrying more than ever. He's worrying, he's anxious more than ever about the, the prospect of marrying Euphemia, who frankly he does not love. He's more nervous, fretful, pale and shivery and shaky. And the housekeeper goes up to him and says, Young Laird, you're looking even more nervous and discomposed than you did yesterday evening. What, didn't that cocoa do, that I gave you last night do you some good? Oh yes, yes, uh, yes, uh, says the young Laird, the cocoa was fine. Well, I slept like a log. 
I said to a woman, nine o'clock, half past nine, ten o'clock in the morning, long after cockcrow. Best night's sleep I've had in a long time. But of course, as soon as I woke up, well, you know, as a as a, a, a young husband to be, I do have a lot in my mind and I grew fretful and anxious and nervous all over again. Well, don't you worry, you need another good night's sleep. Here, I brought you another of my special, extra special mugs of cocoa. With my extra special uh, magic ingredient in it. Oh, well, it worked for me last night. Yes, I, I could do with some sleep because I'm, I'm so fretful. Yes, I, I'll take the cocoa, thanks. Mm, it was even smoother and creamier than it was last night. What, drain the mug? Yes, of course I'll drain the mug. Drain it to the last drop. Mmm, mm, yummy. Oh, oh, I'm feeling sleepy already. Excuse me, housekeeper, I think I'll go to bed. I'm sure the moment my head hits the pillow, I'll be fast off asleep. Yes, says the housekeeper. I'm sure you will. So the housekeeper makes her way away. The young laird gets into his night clothes, lies down in the bed, puts his head in the pillow. Instant the head hits the pillow. <sighs> Falls fast asleep. The housekeeper, meanwhile, makes her way down, down the back stairs. Meets Jessie at the appointed ten o'clock. Uh, yes, yes, of course, I'm happy to weed the way upstairs. I've got my special key to let you into the secret doors that lead through into the young laird's quarters. Up you come up the stairs. She unlocks all those secret doors, door after door after door. Click, 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 unlock the doors through to the door of the young laird's bedchamber. Well, said the housekeeper, I don't have anything to worry about. It's my young, it's my daughter. Euphemia that he truly loves, my Euphemia that his heart is pledged to, so you can go in and you can chatter away to him all you like, you might have to wake him first, of course, but um, I have nothing to worry about, but remember, you must be back downstairs by the time the cock crows tomorrow morning, yes, yes, says Jesse, five, ten minutes, that's all I need, as soon as I wake him up, so, housekeeper goes downstairs, Jesse creeps into the bedroom, Tiptoes away across all those bearskin rugs there on the fine floor. Again, it's dark in there, but the moon is shining through the window. A brighter, fuller moon than the night before. Brighter shaft of moonlight. Oh, the young laird with his wire tousled, ragged red hair. He looks more handsome than ever. That little red fringe hanging across his eyes as it did in his days as a shaggy red Highland bull. And once again, Jessie goes to the bedside, tries to gently nudge him, nudge him awake prod him awake even tickle 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 him awake no no Towser was red here no no once again well she sits at the bedside and she sings to him she sings a wee bit louder um than she did the night before just to make sure she wakes him up this time and she sings the same song all this long while i searched for you the mountain of glass i climbed for you the bloodied shirt I washed for you. Now open your eyes and this time it will happen. Now open your eyes and she should have it. Now open your eyes and see me. And the young Laird replies. <laughs> yes, thanks to that extra special something and the Laird's cocoa, he is fast asleep. And an even deeper sleep than the night before, sleeping like a great boulder upon the hillside. Sleeping like a great, a great giant redwood log in the forest. Fast, fast asleep. And again she tries to nudge him, 
prodding, tickling, tousling his hair. Sings, 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 hour after hour, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock. Sings, sings, prods, tousles, tickles. Nothing will wake him up. And then suddenly, before she knows it, cock crow. Down in the courtyard, she has to go. She has to keep her part of the deal once again, utterly defeated. Won't you wake up? Please, please, my handsome young laird. Won't you wake up? No, he will not wake up. No choice. She has to leave him. Down the back stairs, back down to the servants' quarters. Go back to the scrubbing and the scraping and the washing the dishes and the the frying up the fried eggs for breakfast and so on and so forth. Back to despair. Back to hopelessness back to no way out because now the uh, now it's one day one day folks before the young laird is to marry the housekeeper's daughter Euphemia Jesse is fast running out of time a hopeless situation indeed well maybe not quite so hopeless there's still one last straw as it were to cling to there's one last piece of magical fruit from the red shaggy-haired bull's brothers, as encountered in last week's episode, left in her little knapsack, a magic peach. She pulls out the magic peach. She was told by the third brother not to eat it, not to bite into it, but to crush it when there was a moment of absolute hopelessness. And there in the pulp of the crushed peach, she might find what she needed to lead a way out of that hopeless dead end. So she takes out the magic peach, doesn't bite it, doesn't chew it, doesn't crunch it, doesn't eat it, but (coughs) squelches it flat. And there, in the pulp of the crushed peach, more beautiful than the diamonds the first night, more beautiful than the emeralds the following day, glittering, gleaming there, bright red rubies. A wealth of beautiful rubies. And she scoops up the great handful of rubies. And she thinks, well, last chance. Last chance he's going to marry tomorrow. She goes back to the housekeeper. And she says, housekeeper, we we, we had a a wee bit of a problem. A wee bit of a problem Um, the last two nights. I couldn't wake up the young laird. But here, look at all these rubies. Bright red rubies. More valuable than the, the diamonds and the emeralds put together. I will give you these bright red rubies. If tonight, 10 o'clock, you will let me in at the back stairs, lead me up to the young laird's quarters, unlock all the secret doors that lead through into the laird's quarters, leave me at the door of his bedchamber. I know you might be fretful about doing that, because tomorrow he's supposed to be marrying Euphemia. I know you won't want that called off. But nevertheless, I will give you all these rubies if you will let me into his chamber tonight. And of course, yes, housekeeper is a wee bit fretful. Tomorrow is the wedding. Tomorrow is the wedding that will make not only Euphemia, the young laird's wife, it will make her, just as importantly, it will make her the young laird's mother-in-law. With all the wealth and power and influence that will bring in the kingdom. Oh, that's what she really wants, to be the the laird's mother-in-law. She doesn't want to sacrifice that, letting Jessie get too close to the young laird the very night before the wedding. Even so, those are brilliant red rubies. Oh, they'll fetch a fair price, an even grander price than the diamonds and the emeralds. And we know how this housekeeper likes to get her hands on as much money and wealth as she possibly can. 
Yes, and after all what she did the last two nights, it worked. It worked perfectly. Yes, she had no hope, this chit of a girl, no hope of waking the young laird. And she will have to keep her part of the deal, have to be out there by cock crow. Why, she'll have to be out there long before the laird wakes up for his wedding day with Euphemia. Yes, the housekeeper knows exactly what to do. Yes, I will take those red, red rubies off. Yeah, hand them over, hand them over. Oh, watch, oh, watch, you don't spill over the side of my hand. So many of them. Put them right here in the pocket, my penny. Oh, hard squeak. Oh, one's dropped on the floor there. Don't want to lose a single red, red ruby. All right, all right. Ten o'clock, ten o'clock tonight. I'll meet you at the bottom of the back stairs. I'll lead you all the way up and I'll let you in one last time. It must be the last time. Tomorrow night will be his wedding night. His wedding night with my beautiful daughter Euphemia. You won't be able to intrude on in that. I'll tell you that much. Um, but the one last chance I'll lead you up to this bedchamber. See you at ten o'clock. Go to the back stairs. Meanwhile, get on with all your dirty jobs down here in the servants' quarters. So, Jessie gets on. Maybe surely tonight, tonight will break her run of bad luck. She gets on with all her, her work down there in the scullery. And uh, the housekeeper, she goes, uh, just check, just check in the medicine cupboard. She's got, yes, just enough, just one last dose of that extra special something she has been putting in the young laird's cocoa. So he sleeps like a log. Oh, yes, she's got enough. Well, she'll give him a double dose tonight just to be doubly sure. That he, he doesn't see nor hear anything of Jesse tonight. Ha ha ha. Evil old woman. Anyway, so well, the pattern seems set. It looks like we're set, folks, for a, a deeply unhappy and tragic ending. With Jesse's love unfulfilled, the young laird's unfulfilled, and him stuck with Euphemia to boot. One day till the wedding. But we've a wee twist in store for you. For of course, yes, it's the night before the wedding. Oh, what does the young laird do like any uh, a bride to gro bride, uh, young bridegroom to be? What does he do the night before the wedding? Um, he has his stag night. He goes out with his pals, his buddies, his friends, out to the grandest of the taverns in the town to sink a few beers to celebrate his so-called last night of freedom. But the fact is the young laird isn't, isn't in a very celebratory mood. He drains tankard after tankard of the local ale in a very disconsolate mood. He's looking very down in the mouth and his best pal goes over to him and says, well, it's your stag night. It's a night for celebrating. Why are you looking so down in the mouth? Well, I know that uh, Euphemia, she's uh, no much of an oil point paint. She's not much of a catch. Uh, that smell, oh, it's a wee bit off-putting. But, um, you know, you know, what's the problem? I mean, put up with it. I mean, uh, young noblemen, you're not supposed to marry for love anyway. You're supposed to marry for, you know, power and influence and so on. And anyway, young noblemen like yourself, you're allowed to have mistresses. It's a traditional custom. You know, you can have your wife at home. Um, raising the children, doing all the domestic stuff, and like any handsome young eligible nobleman, you can you can have uh, your mistresses, you can have mistresses all over the place and carry on with them and have all your real fun with them. I mean, I know you've at least got one girl in reserve. I know, I know. For I, I, I heard her the last couple of nights singing to you, you dirty thing. Two two nights before your wedding, you've been having some other woman come in. Wasn't it Euphemia? I know what Euphemia's voice sounds like. The, the croaking of a bullfrog would be more melodious and musical than the singing voice of Euphemia. But I've heard another woman. 
in your bedchamber these last two nights singing to you in a beautiful, beautiful voice. And if whoever she is, she's as beautiful as the sound of her voice. Well, well, she'll do just fine for you after your wedding as your, your wee bit on the side, as it were. Your mistress to keep in reserve. What? says the young laird over the rim of his tra- of his tankard. Well, I, sorry, I, excuse me, I, I don't know what the heck you're talking about. Someone say, I, I, please explain to me what, what, what you're on about. Oh, come on, says his pal. Come on. I mean, in the run-up to your wedding, you invited me to, to come here and stay with you. I'm your best man, after all. Your best man tomorrow to come and stay with you here in the castle. Be with you here in your stag night. And, well, the, you gave me that grand room up in the tower of the castle. Well, the last couple of nights, I've been lying there in my grand room in the castle, just up above you, just up above your room. And well, I like to sweep with the, the windows open. You know, I'm a fresh air fiend. I've been sweeping there the last couple of nights with my windows wide open. Except I haven't swept because I, both nights I woke up because I could hear a beautiful voice in the night. A beautiful voice singing a beautiful song echoing through the night air. Some song about uh, some beautiful woman uh, searching for the man that she loved. Climbing some kind of a mountain for him. It almost sounded as if it was that, that glass mountain back down the road there. Something about cleaning a shirt for him. And asking him to open his eyes and see her. It was such a beautiful song. I went to the window. And I had a wee kick out through the open window. And I looked down and down below I could see your window. Your open window. And I could hear... That beautiful voice, you dirty dog, nudge, 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 oh, you rogue that you are. I could hear that that beautiful voice, both nights, was coming from your bedchamber. Got a wee bit on the side already, have you? A wee mistress in reserve, well, you don't have to worry about Euphemia. Marrying Euphemia when you've got a a woman like that, you know, eh, eh, hiding in the background. Aye, don't you? Well, you'll do okay. Keep Euphemia, yes, she can do all the domestic stuff and you can carry on with your mistress in the meantime. Beautiful voice she's got. Is she really as beautiful as she sounds? Wait, 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 says the laird. I say again, I don't know what the heck you're on about. A woman singing to me. You thought you heard a woman singing in my bedchamber. Singing to me two nights running. I didn't hear a woman singing to me. I mean, uh, I, I, was fast, I was fast asleep, of course. But I mean, if a woman had been singing at my bedside, I'm sure I'd have wakened up. I mean, I did have quite strong cocoa, lovely cocoa my housekeeper's been making for me that, that made me fall fast asleep. But I'm sure if a young woman if a young woman was singing to me right there at my bedside, I would have heard that. That would have wakened me up, but I didn't waken up, so you must be imagining the whole thing. What did you say she was singing a song about? Searching for the man she loved. And what was the next bit? Something about climbing a, a, a mountain, maybe even the glass mountain. Something about, no wait, what, what, what was the next bit? It was something about, something about cleaning a shirt. Washing a stain out of a shirt. You know, it's funny. It's funny, I did sleep very, very deeply the last couple of nights. So deeply that um, maybe nothing, maybe not even a beautiful woman singing to me in a beautiful voice would have wakened me so Potent was that cocoa. 
that cocoa prepared by my my future mother-in-law. Yes, that cocoa pre prepared by Euphemia's mother. Well, that's strange. That gets me thinking. That gets me thinking about the potency of that cocoa. She's promised to make me that cocoa again tonight. It being the last night before my wedding, she's figuring I'll be very, very nervous tonight, as frankly I am, faced with the thought of being at the altar with Euphemia tomorrow morning. But I wonder, I wonder, what if I didn't take my cocoa tonight? What if I didn't sleep quite as deeply? What if I didn't sleep at all? What if I just put my head in the pillow, closed my eyes, but kept my ears wide open? Yes, um... Yes, I'll just finish off my ale here. Well, I think that's enough for a stag night. I, as you say, I, I don't feel very celebratory tonight. Well, um, I'll see you tomorrow morning at the uh, at the church, best man. You've been the best man to me tonight, telling me all that. That information comes in, I think, very, very handy. Handy it does. But just after nine o'clock that night... It's a, he's come home very early from his stag night. The young prince is getting, the young laird is getting ready for bed. And in comes the housekeeper. The silver tray, the mug of steaming cocoa upon it. Oh, last night before your happy nuptials. Last night before the happy day. I'll bet you feel nervous. Any young bridegroom to be would feel nervous the night. Aye, aye, aye. You'll need a good night's sleep. I'm sure your female will uh, make uh, certain demands on you tomorrow that might quite wear you out. You'll need all your all your health and strength. You'll need a good night's sleep. And more so, you'll need your cocoa tonight. I made it up specially strong and sweet tonight. Here, young Laird, take your cocoa and drink the last drop. And when you wake tomorrow morning, the sun's shining through your window, you'll be just the man to marry my Euphemia at the church altar. Go on, drain it to the last drop. Yes, yes, this lovely um, cocoa of yours. Yes, uh, I have enjoyed it the last couple of nights, so it put me deep, deep asleep. Oh yes, yes, oh no, what, oh what, uh, yes, you want me to, to drink it while you're watching, yes, so you can take the mug down to you to, to wash it, yes, all right, yes, well, I'll, I'll just, uh, I'll, I'll just drink it now, I'll just drink it. Oh look, wait, what's that there at the window? A bat. Oh watch, the window's open. What, what, says the housekeeper, a bat, a bat. Oh, oh, it got stuck in my hairdo. Bat, it'll flap its claws into my hairdo. Where's the bat, where? Oh, I can't see any bat there, sir. There's no bat there at the window. Oh, oh, says the young lady, just a trick of the light. But while the, the housekeeper's back was turned, looking for the aforementioned non-existent bat, our canny young laird poured that steaming mug of, of uh, cocoa with its extra special something in it, poured it not down his throat, but poured it into a flower pot by the side of his bed. Poured it into the earth of the flower pot. Well, the, the flowers in the pot, they go... They, 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 they dwindle away to nothing. They shrivel away to nothing. But the housekeeper fortunately doesn't notice that as he hands her back, as she turns round from the window where she thought the bat was, he hands her the empty mug. Oh, that was lovely, he said. Oh, I see, I drank it to the last drop. There, take it downstairs. Wash the mug. And you get yourself some sleep as well, because tomorrow, of course, tomorrow's the day we have the big ceremony in the church. You become my mother-in-law. Uh, see you tomorrow at the church. Good night, good night, good night. 
and the housekeeper says, ah, creeps away thinking to herself, oh, that double doze I put in tonight. Oh, he'll sweep, he'll sweep nice and tight till the time of the wedding ceremony tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning when Euphemia becomes his wife and I become his mother-in-law. Ha, ha, ha. So she makes her way downstairs. But of course, yes, the young Laird hasn't touched a drop. It's all gone in the flower pot, but he climbs into bed Puts his head in the pillow, does not fall asleep. He's wide awake, but he closes his eyes just to pretend to be asleep. Closes his eyes and waits and waits and waits. It seems only a few minutes later that he hears the door clicking open. He hears a soft tread on the floor. Of his bedchamber, a soft tread across the bare skin rubs, rugs. Still, he keeps his eyes closed. He senses a figure creeping up to the bedside, a familiar fragrance, a beautiful, youthful fragrance to make him think of the wild heather on the faraway island of Arran, wafts itself about him. And he feels a, a figure settling settling on the edge of his bed and still keeping his eyes closed he hears a voice a voice there in the night singing to him a voice he remembers so well even though the last time he heard that beautiful beautiful voice it was filtered through the great flappy floppy ear of a shaggy red haired highland bull which he was at the time and the voice sings out to him all this long while I searched for you. The mountain of glass I climbed for you. The bloodied shirt I washed for you. Now open. <laughs> but she breaks into tears. She can hardly bring herself to say the words because she knows what will happen. He'll just snore right through the whole thing. But she wipes the tears aside and says... <laughs> Anyway, she says, now open your eyes. And, oh, but he won't, of course, he won't open his eyes. He won't open his eyes and see me, but, well, I must sing the song anyway. Now open your eyes and, <laughs> open your eyes and see me. And he does open his eyes. And he raises his head from the pillow and he sees her there in the gleaming moonlight. He lights a lamp and there in the warm glow from the lamp he sees her at last after all this long, long while. The woman he truly loves. The woman he swam across to the island of Arran to find because he knew that's where all the really beautiful women are. The beautiful young woman he carried from Arran back to the mainland in the form of, yes, a red shaggy-haired highland bull. The woman he wanted to marry. The woman he lost. Lost at the top of the misty glen after fighting, fighting the horrible bogle down in the glen to win back his true human form so he could truly marry her in his true human form. The woman he went through all that for. There she is before him. His beautiful, beautiful Jessie. Yes, he looks upon her. He caresses her face, her beautiful face, and he says... Yes, Jessie, I see you, I hear you, and oh my Jessie, I love you, 
and only you. And Jessie looks at him and she says, Oh my laird, who I first fell in love with as a shaggy red-haired highland bull, who I love all the more now, you rather tousle, red-haired, handsome young laird, I see you, I hear you, and I love you. And he says, well then, there's only one more thing to say. Will you marry me, Jessie? And Jessie says, yes, my love. And so the next morning, at the church, at the grand church at the altar, there's the best man. There is a wedding. But it's not the wedding of the laird to Euphemia. Just as well, he saw her that morning in his way to the church. He saw her out the back, hunting those rats, catching them with her, her bare teeth, the waggling tails hanging out between the gaps between her yellow teeth. Oh, lucky escape. It's Jessie that he marries there at the altar rail. Jessie that he marries and Jessie, with whom, after all this long, long while, he lives happily ever after. The housekeeper, glowering, glowering helplessly, in the background. Oh, don't worry too much about Euphemia. Well, she didn't net the young laird, but she uh, she made her way down south and in uh, due course um, she married into the English royal family. This was many, many generations ago, but you can still see a wee bit of a trace of Euphemia's physiognomy uh, uh, under the, uh, in, the, in the subsequent uh, descendants. Um, but as for, yes, as for Jessie and our young laird, they married and they lived Happily ever after. And with that happy ever after ending, folks, I hope you'll come back for more. Here on Aaron Sound, Winter's Tale, same time, same place, next week, when I'll have another magical tale to tell you. Thank you for listening to this one.